Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. How are we supposed to make any sense out of this year in comedy, 2020? There's only one way I know how. That's by reuniting with Jason Zinneman of the New York Times, the Siskel to my Ebert and comedy criticism, to hash out 2020 and give some shout-outs to the most valuable players in comedy. So let's get to it! Welcome once again, everybody, to our annual Comedy MVPs podcast. For those of you who haven't tuned in before, my name is Sean L. McCarthy. I'm the comedy critic for Decider.com and a freelance contributor of comedy listings to the New York Times. As always, every year for six years in a row, joining me is Jason Zinneman, the comedy critic for the New York Times. And we don't do a traditional year in review. What we do is... Um, take the, the philosophy of sports and we look at who is the most valuable player or most valuable players for the year. So Jason Zinneman, welcome once more. Good to be here. Good to see you on Zoom, Sean. I'm so- yes, we're doing it on Zoom instead of in your apartment in Brooklyn. Uh, but you know, it's, it's, it's symbolic of 2020s. We have to do everything on Zoom now. Sean, I can. I want to tell your listeners that on your wall is a picture of a zebra and a big boat. <laughs> <laughs> I know they've been wondering. Um, Sean, let me ask you: How much comedy have you seen this year? I, I can say myself is that it's weird to be doing this end of the year podcast. I love doing it with you, but it is. I've never seen less. Certainly, stand up, but I would even say more generally, like new comedy, than I have this year. This, right. I've seen less of it. And in fact, I was when I was looked back at my year, I think I've never seen more old comedy. I never read more memoirs. I never well, I, I, I wrote more stories this year about dead comedians from the past than I ever have. That's true for me as well. I watched early on in the pandemic. I went back and watched a lot of George Carlin. Uh, that was for a piece for the, that I did for the Times for Carlin's posthumous birthday, and wondering like what how he would react to 2020. Oh, interesting. Um, you had asked me uh, in some of our prep work for this about what kinds of uh, outdoor or renegade shows I'd been to, and honestly, since the pandemic, I'd only gone to the outdoor shows in my own neighborhood. Sorry. I wasn't. I wasn't willing to get on the subway and go to the parks and or go to either of the clubs that were doing rooftops or speakeasy type shows. I just, um, wasn't, just wasn't willing to do it. No, neither was I. I mean, I, I do say, luckily there are some outdoor, I, I haven't, there, there are some outdoor shows in my neighborhood. Um, and in fact, there was one outdoor show right across the street from my house, which was going on at like 11 o'clock at night, which was keeping my kids up. So that, <laughs> it was miserable, but also kind of convenient. It's never been more, I just like open the window and stick my head out and I'm doing my job. 
<laughs> they're bringing the comedy to you. Um, they're bringing the comedy to me. Yeah. But 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 I, before we we started, I, I, I asked you a question, which I wanted to. I was going to say that in this terrible year, and I, I tweeted this out, and I wanted, but I didn't. You didn't answer. Uh, did comedy ever help? Oof. You know, it's so odd because you know the two of us watch so much comedy for a living that most of my relief came from watching other things. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. I'm glad to hear you say that, actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> and maybe that's precisely because comedy is our work. Yes. Um, although, and we can get into this a little bit later, um, as, you know, perhaps not the MVP, but certainly minor minor level or runners-up candidates for me would be the, the selfie stars who emerged during the pandemic, the, the comedians who, for lack of a stage, found a way to make themselves known in a way they hadn't been known before through Twitter or Instagram or TikTok. Yes, I want to talk about that too. But I, but I want to, I want to. You just said something which I'm almost embarrassed to admit, but I, but I'm glad you said it first, which is that, um, yeah, I feel the exact same way, um, and it almost is an argument for why people like us should lose our jobs. Um, only amateurs should be doing uh, comedy criticism because I the things that gave me relief were were precisely not comedy. They were uh, horror films that gave me relief. Um, definitely, there were some other things, other kinds of entertainment. But I don't know if it's because of the job or whatever. But that's why what was interesting to me is that there is this debate that's been going on among comedians. I, I, you know, Hannah Gatsby started this, I think you know, new wave of, of specials you know, she makes, the, she made a real case against comedy as being good for you. It's not the best medicine, she argued. And she kind of explains why. And, um, and I, and I think a lot of people, particularly kind of comedy nerds were sympathetic to that because we've been, we've been hearing these very sentimental cliche are I, I, uh, arguments for the, how comedy is, is, you know, uh, helps during the worst of times. You know, the most extreme example of this is like, there's people who've been said like comedy who will, will help you if you have cancer, but people are like, when they're sad, they watch kind of, and there's all these things which, I, which I've heard so many of these things that right. I get a little cynical about it. And so when I, but, but it was bracing when I tweeted out just like two days ago, during this horrible year, did comedy help? And I'll just, a flood of people, like, you know, hundreds of people, said it did and with very specific examples and it, on one sense it was like one guy was like yeah keep doing your your fucking job like you're like we we need to know what's going and so in that sense it was like hardening but it was also like oh maybe i'm like i've become so jaded that i'm too sympathetic to that hannah gatsby position which blinds me to the sentimental position that has a lot of truth to it that Ted Lasso helped a lot of people and, and uh, best selling stand special helped people through a lot of this. And, you know, people didn't want to see all kinds of dark entertainments and dramas and they wanted to laugh. Well, that's, you know, that's ultimately the reason why people go to the comedy club weekend after weekend is because they're looking. Most people aren't like you and I, <laughs> most oh. people aren't digesting comedy every week. <laughs> every every week at least one special a week for the for our for the rest of our lives right most people are going 
you know, pre-pandemic, most people are going to work, they're coming home, they're having dinner, they have kids, they have to deal with the kids. And then, you know, comedy for them is is a release. Right. And, and they might only, they might not even know the names of more than a couple of comedians. So, right. you know, that's why, you know, comedians joke that they're the only thing where people just go, they're going to the comedy club. They're not going to see so-and-so is on the marquee. Um, totally. You know, that's changed a little bit during this comedy boom because of podcasting um, and Netflix. But ultimately what it comes down to is catharsis. Like people are looking for catharsis. And for most people, that still is comedy. For people like you and me, catharsis has almost automatically has to be something else because we're so, we're so inundated with comedy that... Well, I think it's... I, th- I think it's important for you people like you and me to re- and I think both of us do is to remember that and to watch these things with an eye with our own eye our own jaded eyes but also with the eye of somebody who only sees a couple specials a year and has to decide how they're going to spend their time and you know that because I think personally I'm attracted to I probably I have a bias towards the new and the you know the people taking big risks and people doing innovating and form and hearing jokes that I hadn't heard before. But most people, that's not how they're watching. They don't have a bias towards that. They, in fact, they'll forgive an old joke if it's funny and if it's put to, you know, the, you know, uh, and they, they won't forgive some formal experiment that's really interesting and, you know, but doesn't make them laugh. Um, so it is in times like these, that, clarify that thing that's always been there which is that we're we have this you know we have to remember how normal people view this as part of our job i think it seems even more clear now when people you know again like i did uh, this is uh, you know you and i did not go to stand did not make watching stand didn't make us feel better about the horror of the news right um other things did but that's just not true for a lot of people yeah and, you know, that's probably, you know, your point about remembering that we're we're watching it through different eyes than most viewers. That's probably wasn't any more clear to me than uh, this fall when I was watching the Thanksgiving special that uh, Jeff Dunham put out. Right. <laughs> you know, Jeff Dunham, hugely successful ventriloquist, putting out a special in the middle of the pandemic. And you're like, well, why, why, you know, there's just so many whys. And then yeah. you watch it and you're like, okay, well, let me just put, watch this through the eyes of people who are fans of his. And he, you have to remember, there's a reason that people pay good money to see these performers. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, that said, uh, Jeff Dunham did not appear on my list of comedies MVPs for 2020. Um, but before I unveil my uh, finalists slash top picks, Jason, you're my guest. So as always, I would, I would love for your initial input. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, who do you, who do you have as a top candidate, your number one choice for comedy? Well, I, kind of give, I, I, I do a best of piece mm-hmm. and I get around doing a top, I don't do a top 10. Right. Um, but I feel like I'm, it would be a cop-out to not... I always do try to make a point of saying best special. Right. Right? Because I don't want to be a chicken. I, people <laughs> like you who have, who have courage 
do a top ten. It's hard, not easy. You got to put yourself on the line. You go yeah. in the front line. You take you take the heat, Sean. Well, that's why that's why I get paid the small bucks. That's why you get paid the small bucks. Exactly. I, well, I I cower and avoid <laughs> cleverly avoid doing a top ten. But because I sympathize with you and feel bad about it, I do make myself do a best special. And you know. Comedy, as we were able to say, is, is subjective. What may, what's funny, what's not. But some things aren't. And this, the best special for me was a special which was one that I watched three times this year. And when you watch something for a third time and you're cracking up, yeah, that says something. That says something that's subjective. I'm objectively <laughs> cracking up at jokes I know, and that's Eddie Pepitone's for the masses. Um, that uh, and Eddie Pepitone, I think you know, partly part of the reason I did that was I do think he's undervalued by for for all by all of us, by myself included. I haven't written about Petty, Eddie Pepitone at any length, um, and he, you know, and in part I think it's because he's a kind of a weird figure. He sort of fits in between scenes. And, um, but he's one of those guys where like, he's funny, whatever he's saying, like his, he's, he starts out with this kind of belligerent persona. And then he kind of pivots, um, to, uh, this, as I put it, like the sort of NPR voice, um, and his opener, which was basically this long pit where he's pretending to be on Molly in this voice. I can't do justice to it, but it just may, destroys me. Um, and it, um, We'll have to get you know, uh, get uh, uh, Adomian, James Adomian on here. He does a Eddie Pepitone. Oh, I'm sure he is an incredible Eddie Pepitone. I mean, he, I love when he like calls for revolution. Then he's like, but I won't be joining you because I'm binge watching Ozark. And the, <laughs> the, uh, the uh, I mean, I, I just think his stuff is really visceral for the, um, to, you know, kind of uh, big laugh humor, but also sneakily smart. So, um, I think people should check that out. You know, for some reason, Netflix didn't, didn't sign him up. He's on, he's on Amazon. Yeah. Um, so he was my, he was in, in a very weak year. Um, he's, he's my highlight. I had had many others, but, but, but he, he, he was the, he was my best special. I, I will not argue with you. I, I, Sadly, I could not include him in my top 10 because I had not reviewed him. So I had to give him uh, honorable mention as the best and funniest stand-up special that I did not write a review for for Decider. Okay. okay. And that's, and that's you know, probably because of what, like you said, his, his, the way he's been undervalued by the market, the fact that, you know, he had to put it out himself and then eventually it was available on Amazon Prime. But because it wasn't an Amazon original, you know, my bosses didn't have me write a review of it. So, Well, that's, I think, I mean, I, a lot of my names for this year are people who didn't. I found some of the best stuff was, was stuff that didn't come out by Netflix. This was the year where I thought, like, oh, Netflix, you know, isn't, isn't getting the best comics. People, YouTube... People are, are are releasing stuff on YouTube that's the best. I mean, Hannibal Burris. Yeah, Hannibal was on my top ten. His re- release on YouTube was not only was it hilarious and great, but I think it was by far his best special. Yep. Um, not just in the jokes, not just in, but in the in, in the production of it. I mean, if if your YouTube special looks better, than <laughs> your, you know, Netflix or Comedy Central specials, we're in an upside down world then. You know? <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. Well, you you bring me okay. So I um, I agree with you that Eddie had one of the best specials of the year. Um, I wouldn't put him as an MVP though. Maybe like an outstanding performance or or you know slash best special. My my first name for consideration as an MVP uh, will come as no surprise to people who uh, look at who are the the top comedians around. Uh, Mr. Dave Chappelle. Interesting. Uh, because Mr. Chappelle did a few things that nobody else did in 2020. Um, last things first, he bought an old fire station and is going to turn it into a comedy club <laughs> in <laughs> Yellow Springs, Ohio. You can, you can talk about, um, what an impact that's going to have. Um, also in Yellow Springs, he figured out a way to have a COVID, uh, safe, performance zone throughout the summer that attracted comedians from all over. They were calling it Chappelle's summer camp. Uh, third, he put out, this was on YouTube, Netflix's YouTube channel. He put out that 846 half hour special, uh, you know, talking about race in America. You know, he's always been a stalwart comedian in terms of talking about race relations, but you know, with 846 in the wake of the George Floyd killing, he talked about it in a more, serious way than than any comedian has since prior perhaps um and then at the end of the year he put out that weird little instagram short which was a super flex where he got both netflix and hbo max to remove Chappelle's show as a as a uh as a shot across the bow for the rights of maybe all future comedians to argue for their own rights. Of super rich, powerful <laughs> comedians. Finally, yeah. someone stands up for the <laughs> for the, the millionaire, the the private jet class. Although, although in this pandemic, isn't it ironic that you know Jeff Bezos and so many other people have gotten even more uber wealthy in the pandemic, and they haven't reached out. But in, at least in comedy, the the guy, the person at the top was doing some flexing for the rest of us. I don't know if he was. I, I'm, I'm, I, I'll disagree with you on that one. In okay. that, I, I think that, um, I think he deserves to be consideration for all the reasons that you gave. And um, um, I disagree. I wasn't that, that, that was the best thing on police brutality since prior. Um, and I also, um, and I think that, you know, Chappelle has sort of cr- created his own interesting, weird branch of performance art. Mm-hmm. Um, he's as much of like a comedian without laughs as anybody at this point. Like he does, he he tells these, you know, he's almost like he seems like some kind of character from a play now. Like he's, you know, his, he tells these long stories about his own history, burnishing his legend. And I'm sorry, I said this in admiration. It's very interesting. I mean, yeah. I, I feel it also, I think the thing he did with, with HBO Max and Netflix was the most interesting. And also, you know, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom just came out on Netflix. I don't know if you've, I don't know if you've seen it. Not yet. But it's a play about, um, you know, the... Um, it, the, it's a play about a black artist. Ma Rainey's a blues singer, and the first scene of the movie version, not the play, is her performing to a black audience, a live audience. All right, and it, and she looks completely in control, and she looks 
calm and at ease and, and, and happy. And then the rest of the play is her recording in a white studio, right? Where you have, she has to then negotiate through this uh, white power structure. Okay. And she looks, everything's a negotiation and she looks kind of miserable um, the whole time. And a lot, and, and she's miserable because she's savvy and understands that as soon as she records it for the studio, it's out of her hands and they're going to exploit her. And it was interesting. There'd be a, there's an interesting piece on comparing the themes of this movie and the themes that Chappelle is ta- are talking about, which are real ones, right? Um, and it's kind of amazing. It shows you the incredible amount of power he has that Netflix and HBO Max backed down um, and put his stuff out. Even, I mean, if everybody did this, I mean, it's like a complete pocket. Everyone signs these terrible deals. And, and I mean, maybe they're not terrible. I mean, they're taking a risk on you. You need them. Chappelle wouldn't have got to the point where he was uh, if he didn't do that. And, um, uh, but anyways, the point is, is that uh, if, if uh, it's also interesting because in a way he really is making a sac- a personal sacrifice there because people are now not going to be able to see his, that work, which is his best work. Right. Um, and future generations are not, you know, even young people today, they know him as this like specific kind of cranky comic. Um, <laughs> and uh, um, anyways, I, I, <laughs> my, my critique of that, I thought he was a fascinating thing, but he he's so direct. He's so focused on himself that he could have at many points pivoted out to like the larger comedy world. And talked about how people are making terrible deals like this who can't do what he's doing. Right. Right. And so and it's not like he was asking Netflix to change the way they do business with other comics. Um, and in fact, the, the, the end of his his thing, he was like, you know, I forgot what the metaphor was, but it was about like he, he now had the power. Right. <laughs> and that's a very tricky thing. And to go back to to uh, Ma Rainey. You know, in that play, she's a big enough star and has a, enough of a connection with her audience that she has the power. But the other character, Levy, who is also a great musician and doesn't have that power mm-hmm. and he's screwed and he's the, the play is ultimately about the tragedy of him. And so when I was watching Chappelle, I kept thinking like, oh, what about all everybody else? Um, and. I think that's one drawback of this interesting period in Chappelle is that he see he he sees so much filtered through his own experience that he misses a lot of what else is what else is going on in the world. That's my only. Okay. Well, mm-hmm. in in that respect, let me offer this second name. Okay. And the second name I offer precisely because of what he did for other comedians, and that name is drumroll, please, Conan O'Brien. Ah, interesting. Conan O'Brien. Um, That's a good one. Formerly of TBS, soon to be fully on board with HBO Max because of his uh, his big pivot with Team Coco this over this pe- the past year, which probably started in 2019 but really took shape in 2020, where he not only negotiated and produced multiple stand-up specials for HBO Max, including my top choice for the year, Beth Stelling, Girl Daddy, which you referenced earlier. Uh, But then also through Team Coco has given uh, several comedians, both established and newcomers, their own podcasts. 
Yep, huge. Yes, and, so and in terms it, of just value for the value for comedians and value for providing uh, the first reliable challenge to Netflix and forever. That's a good one. I mean, he he also should get like a lifetime achievement award now that he announced he's leaving or he's not going to do his talk show anymore. The uh, because his show has been a can I think. I don't know. I don't know if I, I think it's probably. I think I could fairly say it's been better than any other talk shows in giving platforms to interesting comedians. Right. Um, and um, although Seth Meyers, I think, is doing a really good job of that recently, and there's like a, I think you know he he stands to gain by by kind of leaving the or by no longer doing that. But yeah, so I mean, Conan O'Brien definitely deserves to be there. I mean, I think that's the thing. Like my list. If you look back at the year, there's um, it's, it, it was a terrible year for comedy. I think for the obvious reasons, so much, so many, all the clubs closed, improv explode, uh, imploded, the boom busted, and the comedians, being the most entrepreneurial of artists, did adjust, and they adjusted. I would argue faster than other artists, but the comedians that I think did the best were the ones that were already digital so you had these comedians who were like club comedians trying to catch up but the um the comedians who already were doing their work online people like meg stalter people like um is it blair eskin am i I getting her name right erskine erskine i mean that was she was she's like doing some of the best political comedy up you know out there you know up to date right up to the election um no one knew who she was last year then she suddenly became like whatever the latest headline was, she was coming at it from an interesting angle um, and going viral in all sorts of clever, funny ways. Um, and then you have people like, you know, uh, uh, Alyssa Limparis and Eva Victor and that dude who did the Trump, the guy who like came on the scene at the end and suddenly did Trump better than anybody else who has oh, three right. names whose name I forgot. Um, and uh, anyways, this whole genre of people who um, I think became even more prominent. I mean, obviously, the, the biggest name is Sarah Cooper, who um, got a Netflix special out of it. Yeah. Um, the first, you know, sort of the first. Well, I guess you have like Miranda Sings and stuff, but the uh, maybe she's a, she's more of a YouTube person, I guess. Yeah. No, Miranda like, Sings was a YouTube. But yeah, Sarah Cooper, the first TikTok Twitter the first TikTok. I'm actually surprised that more of the big institutions, networks haven't recruited these people. Like I was shocked and maybe I'm naive, but I was shocked that when SNL announced new hires, none of these people were picked because to my eyes, they were doing the most interesting sketch comedy out there. Yeah. I mean, the, the year before SNL, you know, did find uh, Chloe Feynman who was doing, her impersonations on Instagram, uh, as well as in the theaters in LA. But yeah, I was also surprised, like you were, that their their new hires this year in 2020 didn't include people like like Meg or Blair or uh, Brent Terhune or Kylie yep. Brakeman or Caleb Heron. What's that dude? Chris, I don't know how to print the name. Chris Calagro, or whatever. The, oh yeah, yeah. He does uh, all these uh, great like genre critiques. Um, there was the there was the old guy from uh, Staten Island slash New Jersey, Vic DiBattetto, who wow. is who is shouting from his driver's seat 
<laughs> and people didn't people didn't initially know he was a comedian they just thought he was some old i mean that's kind of the beauty of some of the people that you had mentioned though right was that when people first discovered them on twitter they might not have known that it was a comedian doing this yes they were so yes. sucked yeah. into the this is some crazy person reacting to the pandemic and then well, it's like uh, oh yeah it's a comic comedian. And her, like, what's the guy's name? Um, Brent, who I, they, I think their stuff, yeah, their stuff depends on that ambiguity. You're like, is this real? Is this actually, you know, the the, the wife of, uh, you know, the governor of Georgia or whatever? Is this the, really uh, someone from QAnon? Is this really yeah. a MAGA hat? What's going on? Yeah. Whereas, whereas yes. with, someone no. like, whereas with someone like Mary Neely, who I think you wrote about, right? I didn't, but I mean, I, I, I'm Mary Neely was the one who did all of the, the, uh, one woman Broadway musical. Incredible. Yeah. She made all like the lists of the theater critics. Yeah. I mean, rightfully, I mean, but I think she's a guy, I could be wrong, but I think she's like an improv trained. Oh yeah. Right. The, um, in LA or whatever. Um, but yeah, that's, that, those were the, I think people went to, um, more to these digital platforms, more of these front face facing, is more to podcasts. I mean, there was already too many podcasts, but so <laughs> many big name comedians dove into podcasts. I'm sure you, I tried to keep up, but it, it's futile. Um, there's just so many of them. Well, you know, you mentioned wondering about people not getting hired, uh, but to your credit, you also mentioned Seth Meyers capitalizing, and he did hire one guy, Jeff Wright, hmm. who came straight from TikTok. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So. No, it's it's the one thing I learned. I, you know, I did a story on Carmen Lynch trying to adjust to TikTok, yeah. and in doing that story, what was interesting, I had spent a lot of time on TikTok, right, figuring out who does what. And what's crazy is that there's these some people who are getting huge followings, lip syncing to comedians that we know, who aren't even that famous. It's bizarre, isn't it? And then I would ask those comedians, I would be like, hey, I would, ask, you know, some of them, some of my, I, I told, I was like, if you see someone, let me know. And then there's some, like, there's one woman, uh, this like kind of pretty young blonde woman who lip syncs to a lot of comedians, including Anthony Jessler, and builds up a big audience. Uh -huh. And, and I asked Anthony Jessler, like, what do you, does this bug you? And every, nobody, they all are like, I don't care. <laughs> you know, like do I like they would they prefer to get credit, right? Mm -hmm. And but otherwise, they don't get. And I almost wonder if, like, five years from now, when this woman is more famous than Anthony Jeselnik has a bigger audience than he does, <laughs> if he'll be like, maybe I should have cared. Um, now that probably won't happen, but no. um, it's not. A, it's it is an interesting thing to me because generally speaking, comedians are hyper alert to the audience, right? And yet, the they're like the, this is where the audience is right now. Like TikTok's numbers are huge, right? That's what I, and yet they're like no, at least at least most of them are. Yeah. Some of them are trying to adjust, and some are are, are some are growing up in that world and doing and learning how to be comics through this. Well, I think that's kind of what makes like Sarah Cooper the exception to the rule because she was lip syncing the most famous person, right and doing it in a way that didn't just involve lip syncing. She was do using props and turning the lip sync into a sketch into itself. 
which, you know, whether you can translate that into a full special <clears throat> can be argued. Right, right, right. No, I think, but, I think it wasn't, uh, it didn't, it didn't work um, as well. Uh, and, but it was interesting because I think a lot of, I'm sure you heard a lot of comedians, a lot of resentment towards her. <laughs> um, and um, she got a Netflix special. What? Exactly, exactly. People, anyone who has success with it, but I partially it's the, the natural, like resenting people successful, but part of it also is like the this isn't real, this is fucking TikTok. Yeah. Um, but well, well, I mean, her special then, you know, it ultimately ended up not being as much about her as it was about all of the celebrity cameos. Yeah. She got to join her and turn it into something else. So. Well, she put it together so fast. Yeah, I think it it felt felt you could feel that. But I mean, I, I, I let's I also I want to shout out a few people who I think in terms of like most valuable player the the kind of Leslie Jones had a great year, both because it's she put out a great special and she I don't know I don't watch the supermarket sweep but she's hosting a super a game show that's something right. and then the third thing is she's like gone crazy viral with these. She's someone who figured out a way to go viral, not on NBC, which is doing these like, I mean, again, this goes back to the thing about like how people who aren't comedy critics take in comedy. So many people I know who don't watch specials regularly, like became fans of Leslie Jones making fun of the backgrounds of political pundits. Yeah. Um, so no, that was very clever. I think Beth Stelling, which you already mentioned, was I think was like very smart of HBO Max to start with her. That was I mean I know she's been doing comedy for a while, but this was her first special, and I thought it was just like a a, a great introduction to her. Um, and um, and she's just like a fully formed, you know, dynamic comic who's got who can be silly and can be smart and can be physical and can be cerebral, can do short jokes and longer. I mean, it was just fun to see someone who was like that in control of her form started exactly. in, in a debut. No, I had her as the number one on my list. You did? Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, especially because she also tackled some heavy topics, but did so with yep. such a light touch that you might not, might not oh yeah. That's a whole Me Too special. I'm not going to watch that. Instead, you're like sucked in with all the all the zingers, and you're like, before you know, it, you're like, oh wow, she got me rethinking abortion and sexual consent. And by the yeah, I think she like puts a lie to the idea that like you got to be either political or you got to either be all about your own autobiography. It's like she did it all. Like, yeah. It's a, to me, it was like a special about your dad. But you're right. It was also a special about Me Too and about consent and about sex. It was. It, it it really was um, ambitious and funny and, and about other male comedians. It, totally. At, totally. At a time at a time when it came out, when uh, more male comedians were being outed as as. I've, I've also got a friend. I'm not going to name her because I don't want to embarrass her. But I've got a friend who uh, is like is is a she work she uh, I work with her and it's always interesting to hear what she always tells me what she's watching. She's got a real weakness for scumbag comics, right? <laughs> got, like very good politics, like very, not good, like very like liberal progressive, <laughs> you know, but she loves scumbag comics and like primarily scumbag male comics. Right. right. But she loved, but she's always looking for a scumbag female comic. Right. And she, and I don't think it's the, not the content of best selling, but she just loves, she was like, Oh, the way she carries herself. Mm-hmm. 
she really liked. And I thought that was interesting um, that there was something about her persona that was like the reason she's able to get away with doing all these different things is because there's something very funny and appealing about her persona. She, she seems like she, even though she fucking, those jokes are so worked out, so refined. She looks like she's barely trying. I know. It's, it's amazing. From her, uh, like everything and like the, the overalls. When's the last time you saw a comedian do a, <laughs> overalls to a special? <laughs> uh, well, I have her paired with someone, another woman who did a remarkable feat of comedy that wasn't stand-up, but dealt with issues of consent and boundaries. And that, of course, would be uh, uh, your friend and mine, Natalie Palomides, who we saw we, we saw her shows when she did them in Brooklyn pre-pandemic, but then watching, <laughs> Nate, watching Nate unfold on Netflix was something else. I mean, I hope that, to me, that's like, I just hope that, that that's a sign that Netflix is going to do more stuff like that. Because there's a, a whole scene out there, it's it's and it's in mostly in LA of those weird uh, aggressive clowns, right. Courtney Peruzzo, that guy Zach Zucker, the uh, if I'm I'm getting the names right anyway. Philip Berger. Yep, yep. They're doing really interesting stuff, and Netflix doesn't this, you know, because Amy Poehler sort of gave it the stamp of approval. They 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 ran with it, but it was. I'll be honest with you, I didn't think it translated to um netflix as well as other as well as the other shows do i felt like you get something when you're in the room and she's like forcing audience members to make decisions there's an extra element of danger and tension (laughs) that you lose i thought the i thought opening with amy poehler talking or whatever yeah terrible decision it's like you know, it looks so, you know, this should be, this should be like the, this is this cool comedian you haven't heard of who's doing her own thing. She doesn't need some, you know, famous person to give their seal of approval. Like I, I just disliked how it was presented, how it was shot. So I was actually, I love that they did it. I'm a huge fan of her work from when we saw her stuff. She's exactly the kind of thing I like, which is, um, you know, this sort of form breaking uh, kind of comedy, but I, I actually, um, I wish I liked the special more than I did. Well, you know, it wasn't the UCB's year. <sighs> but before before we get to the least valuable, before we, before we get to that, there's a couple more MVPs I want to talk about, at yeah. least briefly, or at least, you know, give them shout outs here on the podcast. One would be Amber Ruffin. Yeah, that's a good one. Who I would argue week in, week out, has provided a funnier half hour of late night weekend comedy on Peacock than her friends one door over at Saturday Night Live have been doing. Yeah. Yep. Yep. yep, yep. Every week there's every week there's something that I want to share with my friends. Are you watching a lot of Peacock? Uh yes and no. I mean I have been watching I did watch Amber and I watched Wilmore, which what I wasn't Apple? what about the Apple streaming service? I don't have Apple yet. Neither do I. But, but but apparently Ted Lasso is like the best thing that happened this year. Yeah. Well, I'll have to take advantage of some promotion in 2021. It's too many. For that. I know. It's a problem. Um, it's like I have so many. But but yeah, Ted Lasso was probably the biggest thing that I missed. I mean, the things that are not stand up that stand out for me, Stathlet Flats, which is this oh, yeah, yeah. the best British comedy, cringe comedy I've seen since The Office, mm-hmm. which is on HBO Max 
which has this guy, Jamie Demetrio, who is just delivering one of the great buffoon lead characters. His sister is also hilarious on the vampire show. Um, How to with John Wilson. That's a minor miracle. That show. That's a, it's incredible. And it really stuck with me. The episode that I wrote about it, about um, scaffolding in New York really stuck with me because it's about the theme of how something temporary can become permanent and particularly something temporary in to, to make uh, in, in the, in the means of, uh, in the purpose of keeping people safe, which is obviously you can't, it's one of these things that was incredibly topical, but not in a heavy handed way at all, very oblique it, but it just is so interesting and smart and unexpectedly funny. Um, I'm going to say I'm currently reading um, Ant Kind, which is Charlie Kaufman's novel. Okay. I highly, highly recommend it. It has some of the funniest jokes. It has some of the funniest jokes I've read this, I've read this year. And two, it is the most, as someone who's like a connoisseur of plays and novels and about critics for obvious reasons, it is the most scathing portrait of a critic I've ever read. Um, <laughs> okay. And, so it hits home. It hits home. It hits home, and most 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 scathing portraits do not. They they're actually full. But it is it is. I recommend that very highly. Um, okay. Uh, getting back to getting back to standups, though, I want to mention two more names. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry, go ahead. First would be uh, Amy Schumer, uh, who who got a show out of the pandemic with her husband, a cooking show on the Food Network. That's also going to be. I don't know if it's part of or a second show they're doing together for this new Discovery Plus. Talk about too many streaming platforms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're going to have another one. And then also, I was taken aback by how how much I uh, appreciated and um, how much I got out of watching her docuseries, mm. Yo Max, Expecting Amy. Yes. I think probably because as a guy, I thought I understood what it meant to be a pregnant comedian doing a special <laughs> but then obviously i i knew even less than i thought i knew because to see what she was going through and then still go on stage every night and then to still put together a netflix special that was one of her best specials yeah i was like oh my god i can't believe i've been i've been way too harsh on amy schumer <laughs> <laughs> well i remember i i wrote a piece on her where i spent time with her when she was, you know, seven. Oh yeah, because there was a pregnant photo shoot. Yeah, yeah. I, I was in New Orleans with her when she was throwing up, like in those uh, the uh, and uh, I mean, she look. We you you never and I never understood what it's like to be pregnant. That's one hundred percent true. But she had a she had a particularly bad yeah. pregnancy. She had this this condition where she was like throwing up every couple seconds, uh, every couple minutes. It was it was uh, horrifying. Um, but but yeah, everyone's. I mean, anyways, yeah. The uh, my favorite like petty online drama. She always if you, like. Did you see this thing where she posted something about this joke? She was where she posted Alec Baldwin's wife a picture Where's of it? her uh-huh. and her baby, and she's uh-huh. like very thin in tone, and she's uh-huh. like, "This is like happy holidays for me." And it was like a oh. joke. Okay. And Alec Baldwin's wife yesterday did like this 
like body shaming videos. Oh, no. like, so the NBA had to no, apologize. No. Like this whole, it's like incredible the the number of controversies that surround Instagram and Amy Schumer and all this stuff. But well, thank, um, thankfully, the last name that I wanted to mention in a positive light uh, doesn't have such issues, and that would be Mike Birbiglia. Yeah, uh, because what he did. Um, and Roy Wood Jr. was was part of the impetus of it, but then Mike really carried the baton for those first several weeks was when he organized Tip Your Weight Staff, which was daily fundraisers online that extended to comedy clubs across America in those early weeks of the lockdown. So in terms oh, yeah. of somebody who was, you know, valuable to comedy, Mike definitely stepped up early. Sure. Huge. And apparently he's figuring out doing these digital shows in a way that's better than most. Apparently his digital shows are like getting huge audiences, like thousands of people internationally. And, and he's actually the, I haven't, I'm going to watch one, I think in the next couple of days. Um, but apparently the production of it is much more elaborate than the other ones. So, um, and, and considering it, it continues the premise of just working out completely new bits. Yes. Yes. So no, it's, <laughs> well, I think we should name, I, I also like the person who did the first, this is such a, an intense year that it's easy to forget all the different points of it. But the first person to really come out with a special in the middle of the pandemic that I know of was Ted Alexandro. Um, oh, the, 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 the stay at home. The stay at home one. And I was went back and, and, and looked at it and, and it did bring me back to just how, um, just how bizarre and terrifying you know, April in New York was, uh, and right. Ted was really, you know, he was in Queens. He was in, uh, one of the worst hit parts. Um, and yeah, there was just, you know, you're, you and I were both here. You're in, you're in Queens. I'm in Brooklyn, but it was just nonstop sirens right. and paranoia and things about like, well, what can you, can you touch? Can you, but the moment when like bef- some people wearing masks, some people weren't, I mean, obviously this, infuriating culture war broke out about it but but there is something about that special that i think when people look back at this time that is a better document over how we were all feeling than any that might be looked at as a better document how we all feel than almost any other work of art period um it really does a good job of um of capturing that and then i i also said that the one other person was a Marin probably released the best special of his career, um, yeah. which was by almost accident topical. I mean, and some, which is true of both, you know, Hannibal's too, um, right. which is all about police ab- abuse. Although in one way, and I thought I me, mean, the thing I liked about Marin is that it, it captured the confusion of the time, which is something that I think gets lost a lot in a lot of the angers. That, you know, it's hard to know what to feel about going outside, taking the subway, taking these, you know, he's willing to go there. Although some things I was looking back on and he has this one quote where he says, isn't there something that could bring everyone together and realize that we have to put a stop to like almost everything. What would it take? He's saying about like the polarization. He goes, something terrible. That's what would bring people together. Nothing good. And at the time I thought, Oh, how prophetic. And of course they couldn't seem less. So now it didn't bring people together yeah. at all. Right. Yeah. In my, in my initial review, I wrote that, that uh, it was somehow like comedy karma paying Mark Maron back for all the years of torment it had given him by having that philosophy come out right at the beginning of March. Yep. 
Um, yeah. The only other the only other comedian that I recall really tapping into that moment, um, and this is only because I've been looking back through it, was Louis Black, who recorded a special on March 13th, mm. the final date that he was allowed to tour. He just he managed to have a film crew and recorded that set. So that shows you a very distinct moment in time. Wasn't it called like "Thank You for Risking Your Life" or something? Yeah, thank you, thanks for risking your life. Yeah, yeah. recorded on March thirteenth in in Michigan. So that was the only other one. Um, but I'd written this down in my notes. I don't know if I'd written it down as dark humor or as more of a truth bomb. But I wrote, uh, "Coronavirus is the only real cancel culture." Mm. Because that's something that like you, talk about you and I as critics, we've had to deal with in interviews and in reviews is like dealing with all of these comedians talking about this thing that doesn't really exist for them because they're still existing. Well, this, I mean, that's a, was a whole other conversation, but it, it, it brings me to something we were talking right before this podcast started, which is that in February, the, I, I, the big story in comedy was Ari Shafir made a joke about Kobe Bryant's dying Right. And he was, quote unquote, canceled. Right. And it seems like he was really canceled. He had death threats. His his manager got rid of fired. I mean, look, we're wrong. He had to a say Netflix that. taping that was canceled because yeah, it was that, it was supposed to be the, that weekend. <laughs> and they're now, like, let's fast forward. First of all, nobody remembers this because the next month, COVID, within weeks. Right. Um, but then by the end of the year, he's like on the Comedy Store documentary, on the New Yorker documentary. Like, I, I've even wrote a piece, and I don't want to toot my own horn, but I, I, in my piece, I said, like, this is going to pass and he'll be back. You know, yeah. a, a, that goes to your point. I, I think that the way we talk about this, that cancel culture stuff is totally broken. Um, there, things have changed. You can't organ, but you know, I understand where comedians are, um, but uh, are, are, are more nervous, whatever. But the truth is, is that a lot of comedians, as we, we know, a lot of their business models depend on getting quote unquote canceled <laughs> right. or to, to causing at least some controversy over something that gets them a little more attention. Notoriety. Notoriety. And some of, so as a consequence, some of the most cynical moves there are in order to get, um, you know, in trouble, which is, um, you know, that's just, that's just the, the water in which we swim these days. Well, that was, that's the whole idea between Ari's joke is that he would do that after every major celebrity died, he would write a similar joke, but it was only Kobe Bryant that he got the backlash for which is interesting, which yeah. is interesting. I mean, um, well, well, he was the amazing racist, so. Well, it does go back to the you question to remember the his Yeah, well, it's like, all right, let's, we, the middle question is like, does comedy help, right? And, you know, there is a school of thought that's like, in these worst tragedies, you know, telling jokes, it provides release. Mm -hmm. Even tasteless jokes, um, some people would say especially tasteless jokes. Um, and I think that idea has become out of fashion um, for some good reasons, some bad. Um, but there is something to that, that, you know, um, one way of handling darkness is to joke about it. I think, you know, Ari Shafir is, is doing something very specific. He's really trolling 
song version. But I think it's interesting when I saw like SNL do like some COVID jokes and I had some friends on Twitter who have very, who do, who have like very otherwise risque senses of humor or like, you know, we're happy to make Tizzle be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't want to hear the the COVID. And I was like, huh, that's, it's like, it is interesting. Like, I, that's why I was like, I, I hesitate to be like, there's no such thing. Like I, agree, like, I agree that comedians exaggerate how bad cancel culture is, but things have changed. And people who are, um, you know, people draw the line, I think, um, at, at, uh, in a different place than they did before. Um, I wouldn't have thought that SNL... I'm doing a COVID thing would, would be so risky to the, to, to, you know, to people on this guy, but it was. As risky as the comedy store docuseries. Well, that, that was, that would go in our, we talked about doing least valuable players. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, one thing before, before we get into that, one thing that we should mention is that, you know, the, the coronavirus, um, you know, forced us all to kind of like take a step back and rethink things. And then Black Lives Matter came came back to the forefront. And those things combined had a, had a very kind of like domino effect through the theater community, you know? Um, the longtime CEO of Second City resigned. Uh, Sharna Halpern closed up her doors at Improv Olympic. The UCB is all but shriveled up both spaces in New York closed. One in LA just closed. Was it this today or was it yesterday? Yesterday. The one on but I Sunset. mean, it had been closed since March, but they they finally announced that they had sold it. But you know, who knows how long it had been for sale? So, and we should say that you know, Creek in the Cave closed. Dangerfields closed. I've heard. I'm hearing lots of rumors of other places, but there's none of them are final. Right. Um, I think there's, um, I think there'll be more places closing in the next year, you know, in the next year. But I think to your point, I think it, I agree that of all of the, and this is not just comedy, of all of the um, art forms, none have been, um, none have imploded quite like improv comedy. Improv comedy, you know, six, seven years ago, you could argue was a bigger culturally and even in some ways in terms of star making than stand up. Now all these theaters have just fallen apart. I mean, these theaters, which have been around for, I mean, second city was put up on sale. This is the, the history of this place is huge. IO has been put up for sale. It's it's when, when everything's, when everything comes back, hopefully um, that's going to be a big story about right, what is the entertainment ecosystem going to look like with these places either gone or transformed. Right. And I would, I would argue that the implosion of these institutions is kind of a microcosm of the problems facing America, right? Because yeah. for years, you and I have known about the economic inequities at specifically UCB, but then also that's, that's a framework that exists throughout improv. Like it's only really accessible to the people who already have income who already have like the privilege of being able to spend thousands of dollars on classes. And then, you know, me too and Black Lives Matter have, have like exposed the structural sexism and racism that existed within these 
<laughs> institutions. And they're connected, of course. Yeah. They're, I mean, you know, that's, you know, when I did the pieces way back when about SNL's lack of black female comics and looked at the, you know, the UCB and the, and, and there, the, the lack of diversity was tied to the economic setup of these institutions and the economic setup of the institutions is peculiar. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's weird. I think what, what, what Black Lives Matter and what the pandemic have done is they've exposed that, that they were, these institutions were, were always resting on shaky foundations. Um, there's a reason that UCB and Second City and IO collapsed and off-Broadway theaters didn't. It's not like the off-Broadway theaters are drawing more people or better are healthier businesses or creating more stars. They're not quite the contrary. The reason has to do with mundane shit like off the, the default off-Broadway model is nonprofit and the default um, model for these improv places were profit in which they don't pay their, they break the law and don't pay their employees. It was always going to be unsustainable. Which, which goes back to the comedy store. Which was yep. the original, the original sin of stand-up comedy was, was oh yeah, we're Mitzi was saying I'm I'm providing a works uh, a educational experience for these performers, and barely even got mentioned in the docu series. <laughs> well, and maybe that's because <laughs> the person who made the docu series crossed the picket line. And the comedy store strike, like that was, I think there's nothing wrong with that. And I think he, he, he acknowledged it in the documentary, but it was interesting. Like this story about the strike at the comedy teller, which is the reason that sta every standup gets paid now has been told many, many times in, in books and in other forms. Mm -hmm. And this was by far the most sympathetic treatment of the strike of the people who crossed the picket line of the ownership by far. And, Lo and behold, the guy who made it crossed the bigot line. And well, and also like, Polly Shore was an executive producer. So if he Adam Egit, who's the booker, was yeah. Was so, a producer. so if if they didn't want to talk about the fact that Polly Shore literally pissed on the strikers, they could just leave that out this time around. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, because he was really good kid. Shore piss part part of the story. Yeah. I thought I knew the story. No, it's in the book. Is it? Yeah, it's in the the book. I'm dying up here. Um, I mean, it yeah. was the, the, that documentary was infuriating. Well, and also, and also, it turns out, you know, the timing of it because, you know, as I mentioned when we were talking about Beth Stelling's special, it came out as more comedians, the, more of these scumbags were being outed, and predominantly these scumbags, their home club, the comics. Well, it was that was the incredible thing is that there was this whole. There is like an interesting story about these how these comedians revolving around Joe Rogan's podcast built up audiences through their own podcasts. And suddenly that, that whole, maybe the, the, the next to the improv theaters, nothing imploded as much as this world did. Um, not only did, you know, Chris D'Elia and the other guy uh -huh. have, um, you know, get in, uh, get called out and, and, and disappeared. Um, but Rogan left, moved to and is also apparently going to start a comedy club like Chappelle in well, Texas. We'll see. we'll see. We'll see. But that's what he's saying. Um, so what was the comedy seller scene is when it returns. Store. Is gonna look, comedy store. 
the, I'm sorry, the comedy store yeah. is going to look totally different. None of which you would get from that documentary at all. It was a fascinating, st- and they made it now. Like you can't say, well, we made it four years ago. They have, they're wearing masks and shit. I mean, there's no, they, there's a great story to tell, but they completely ignore it. And instead, I mean, ugh, that, that whole thing. I just, why was Stephen Wright? <laughs> Stephen Wright, one of the, the lights of Boston's comedy scene. Yeah. Why is he even in this at all? there's so many people in there you were like why is this person in even in this why and why it's also just so um (laughs) to not include any other comedy club it's as if the improv didn't exist or even the new york the new york scene didn't exist um and didn't a lot of these comedians didn't come up in those it just is it's funny and this is another it's propaganda it's just propaganda is what it was here's the bigger story there's more comedy documentaries coming out now than ever before. And there's more on the road. And, and I know that because almost all of them come to me at some point. <laughs> some of them wanting me to make these documentaries, right? Uh, so, you know, and one of them is, one genre is like a, about a club because they have all this great footage. Documentaries are all about footage. So they have all this footage. That's what you start with. Yeah. But it's, if you do something all about one club, you're almost by definition, and it's all about the access to the people. Not only is it going to be a conflict of interest, but you're going to have this very blinkered view of the comedy scene. The comedy store didn't emerge, you know, independently of these other clubs, <laughs> right? The all many of those comedians who were on that thing were also performing in other places, and it was important. It wasn't just that the Tonight Show moved from LA, which is like the oldest story. What, um, the interesting, more interesting story to me is the relationship between these. So, you you know, at the same time you have the story, you have in New York, it's it's not that Catch a Rising Star is, it's how Catch a Rising Star, the comic strip, and the improv created this new genre, this new scene. And a lot of what we know of as comedy has to do with the fact that there were three of them. And those three led to the store and the improv over there. So there's a whole interesting history. And a lot of the things like, why is there a brick wall? Well, it has to do with this history. You could make a very fascinating documentary about that. They decided to instead make a commercial for the comedy store. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, I guess if you're so, if your own personal history is so in line with the, with this one club, you know, perhaps if he had just been a little bit more forthright about saying, this is my love letter to the club that, gave me a career, then it could all be filtered through that light and maybe 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 be edited a little differently. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, the, in its defense, I watched the whole thing and there was some great footage. Um, I mean, the the um, but I think there's a lot of bad. There's a lot of documentaries like that coming out now that, um, you know, suffer from that. Um, and there were some good ones too. I mean, there's like the, the Belushi one I thought was pretty interesting. Oh, I like that one a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I like the the Eugene Merman one, you know, ha- had the same yeah. issues and that obviously the people making it are very, they don't have the distance from it, but that's fine. You know? Um, so it's just, it is this kind of booming genre. Gilbert Godfrey one I thought was well, a couple years ago was good, but anyway. Well, that, yeah, that, yeah. that one was fascinating, but um so let's let's try to put wrap, put a bow on 2020. And um, I don't know. 
Can we be optimistic about 2021? No. (laughs) (laughs) Weren't you the one telling me before this that there's nothing in January? (laughs) Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. There's there's no comedy specials that we know of coming out in January. Lord knows the ones that do start showing up. God help us all if they're all COVID jokes. Oh, we're going to have so many COVID. Get you better. That's that's what's going to be for the next year. I can only hope that the comedians who are gearing up or hibernating that they're having a lot of introspection and maybe like seeing their lives differently so that when we all come out of this they can present us with a new perspective on their own life or new perspective on life. That's a good, that's a good silver lining. I like that because that I think is the big, for all of us, we've all been forced to stop what we do, what our our normal lives were. And I don't know about you, but I definitely have learned things about myself that in this period where I'm like, Oh yeah, I didn't like that. I was doing this in this rut of doing this this way. And now that I know that, I can't not know that. I'm going to. I can't not know this about myself now. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to adjust certain things. um, And I'm I'm sure that's true of other people too. The thing I worry about at frankly more is the audience. You know, the, the old, the old mantra is the show must go on. Right. Well, for the first time ever, you know, this is like, didn't happen in 9-11, didn't happen in other the show did not go on, right? These clubs shut down. And there are people who made a habit of going to clubs, watching, you know, and what happens when that habit breaks? Will the audience return in the same numbers? Will it be a different audience? Will they be looking for different things? I don't know, but that, that to me, that's the thing. I'm actually as interested in that, following that, as I am in interesting what happens on stage or on screen. I, will the audience will the audience now be more digital than before? I think the fact that audiences have been turning out to these scattered clubs around the country that have reopened, you know, despite how safe or unsafe it is for that actually to be going on, the fact that the audiences still kept turning out, you know, lets me know that there is there is that bigger audience that will come back, you know, as soon as. As soon as they're allowed, they're going to start coming back. Uh, my hope, though, is that, you know, this great reset, as one of my friends calls it, you know, the cynic in me thinks, yes, n- nothing's going to change. But I would like to think, I would like to hope that clubs and theaters, more than just UCB and Second City, will really reevaluate the way that they're running themselves and the way that they're booking their clubs and, you know, maybe not just think about the bottom line, although I'm sure that's what every club is just thinking about right now at the end of 2020 is their bottom line because they don't have one. So, but I can have hope. I can have hope. What would you, if they, if they announced that the clubs are open tomorrow, Mm -hmm. I, I assume you wouldn't go to a show. You know, I almost, there was, there was that one period, uh, I guess it was the, the weekend, the weekend after the election where the weather was nice in New York, you know, the weather was nice. The election broke. There was that one period where I 
I thought about going down to the stand or the cellar to see what, what was going on there. And then I think because I was covering SNL, I had to stay home that night and I just decided not to. And then, and then that moment passed, but yeah, I'll, I'll start going back once it's, once I've got a, a vaccine. Once you got a vaccine, once yeah. you have a vaccine or once like 50% of the people have a vaccine, when are you going to, when, when will you feel comfortable? Selfishly, I, I guess I would say when I have the vaccine, mm-hmm. I'll feel safe. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll, I'll feel safe visiting my parents once they have the vaccine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because then I won't worry too much about the, the crazy person next to me on an airplane or the crazy person next to me on the subway. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's basically what I f- feel, but but it's hard to know um, until it happens. I mean, the because uh, also I want to see what happens with the vaccine. Like, what what's the and yeah, I I, I think people are gonna react in different ways. You know, it's, I, I just think. Once the habit breaks, then it it's unclear what people do next. And it and it's part look, it's it's our job to cover the scene. It's my job. I mean, I, I'm gonna have to cover it. So I've got it. I'm probably but uh, but I I'm pretty sure. For instance, like older people are gonna be more cautious than younger people. True. And is that gonna change the? the demographics of live comedy. I don't know. Uh, uh, less foreigners in the audience. Less. Fo- that's the huge one. Less <laughs> for New York, for New York purposes, less foreigners in the comedy club audience. It's a huge point. It's a huge point that like, I don't know what the numbers are. I know like in theater, the percentage of tourists in the audience is it's the majority of the audience are tourists by far the vast majority, which was not always the case. For most of the history of Broadway, you know, it was New Yorkers. But then in the you know, 80s and 90s, that changed. And now we're going to go back to what it looks like when it's new, young New Yorkers are going to fill up Broadway comedy clubs. The cellar had a lot of tourists. So so that actually gives me hope for comedy. Yeah, right. Yeah. Because it's not trying to appeal to the lowest common denominator of what translates globally. To a German who can't speak English. Yeah. What's going to get these hip New York or hip jaded New Yorkers? What's going to get them to laugh? So, all right. You've left me with some optimism, Jason. Yeah, glad you. to hear it. Glad to hear it. Well, well, it's always a pleasure doing this. And, and Merry Christmas, Sean. Merry Christmas and uh, a happy 2021 to everybody out there. Uh, we made it. We made it through the year. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks first.